as difficult as it is for people to work within the system that's still on the books, it's very hostile. Nevertheless, it makes a difference when you tell dirtbags, you know, um, we might just put a bullet in your bag, Mr. Dirt. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. My friends, my enemies, welcome on back to the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 126. And if you want to learn more about the things you're going to hear discussed in today's show, head on over to the show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 126. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you about our great sponsors at LibertyManiacs.com, your home for all the political and satirical gear you can handle. As a listener of this show, you can receive a 10% discount off your entire order by using the code, you guessed it, Lions of Liberty. And if you are one of the many, many people becoming frustrated with your Obamacare mandated insurance, be sure to check out the alternative our friends at Health Excellence Select have set up for you guys. You can find out more about that over at lionsofliberty.com health. My guest today is the executive director of Gun Owners of America, a lobbying organization founded to preserve and defend the Second Amendment, a group which Ron Paul has called the only no-compromise gun lobby in Washington. I'm pleased to have with me today Mr. Larry Pratt. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Thank you so much for having me with you. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to your audience. And I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you, sir. I have been a big fan of your organization for some time. Why don't you just start off kind of at the beginning, wherever that may be for you. How did you first become politically aware? And more specifically, how did you first become passionate about gun ownership and the Second Amendment? Well, my interest in guns began in 1968 when rioting was afflicting the city of Washington. I lived in the outskirts off one of the main arteries that the police and their candor happily mentioned that they may not be able to contain the rioters if they were to spill out of the city. So these are the days, 1968, before the Gun Control Act had been imposed, and I went to a sporting goods store and I said, I don't know anything about guns. Um, I figure if I got a shotgun, I might hit something, right? I said, yeah. I said, well, what would you recommend for me? So I bought my shotgun, and uh, it was on that basis. Uh, I've never shot a duck with it. In fact, I've never shot anything with it except trees and targets and things like that. Um, But... uh, I have had the opportunity to use it that way, and God forbid uh, it be necessary, I could certainly uh, know what to do with it. Um, As time went on, uh, I realized that, you know, the police are, whatever they're going to be able to do, they can be overwhelmed, and I just can't be standing around waiting for stuff to happen. I had a young family, and uh, it was my responsibility to protect them if the cops couldn't be there. I think that was the beginning of wisdom, and uh, it was sometime around that period that I left the liberal plantation and be- became conservative, and I think that was part of my journey. Uh, the rest of it was seeing that uh, evolution, which is a major buttress of the liberal worldview, was shot full of holes, and those two things just made me so politically incorrect, although we didn't have the term at the time, that I... Uh, they lost me. I was gone. And the more I looked into the Second Amendment, the more I realized that the Second Amendment was one of the keystones of the limited government, uh, 
system of government that the founders bequeathed to us. We haven't treated our inheritance with as much respect, I think, as it's due. But nevertheless, it was clear that the Second Amendment was one of the biggies, that it was really over the war for independence, as I began to realize, that uh, firearms had been the central issue, that the, the Brits didn't want us to be able to import ball and powder, namely ammunition, and we did. We developed our domestic, if you will, ammunition industry to uh, equip our troops that even at the time were on the field battle, uh, 1775, 1796, and on through the rest of the war for independence. So if we fought a war to actually tell the Brits, get out, you're, you're oppressing us, uh, over firearms, probably even more than taxes. Taxes were a flashpoint, no question about it, but the Brits realized that they could collect all the taxes they wanted if they could just push us around. And it's, it's awfully hard to govern that way when people can shoot you. So what would you say to the objection, though? You know, I hear a lot of people say, well, yeah, the Second Amendment, that was about wartime. And, you know, it even says a well-regulated militia. And, hey, this isn't the 1770s anymore. We're not, we're not occupied by the British, so there's really no reason for, the, for the, the Second Amendment to apply anymore. What would you say to that objection? Well, you're right. That is a frequently heard objection. And when it's made by liberals, I think it's disingenuous because we are occupied. We're occupied by a federal government that has completely disregarded the rather uh, limited nature number of powers that we delegated from we the people for them to administer. And they've come to the point where they think that if they got a majority of votes on a court in a legislature or a chief executive with a pen and a phone, they can do anything that comes into their pointed little heads. And the whole idea of the Second Amendment is to provide the people with guaranteed ownership of the means of saying to such tyrannical notions, no, you won't. You're not going to be able to do that. And we have the means to tell you not to. And so I, and I would stress that just as the founders were very careful to make sure that the first shot was fired by the oppressor, I think that if, God forbid, it ever comes to that again in our time or any other time, it's essential that the, uh, the initiation of aggression be clearly on the part of the tyrant. So you're not a fan of these guys that might say, oh, yeah, you know, we might just need to storm the White House one day or, or something like that, because that, that kind of rhetoric I'll hear sometimes in their sort of the some of the sort of right wing Tea Party area from certain people. And and I think that kind of rhetoric is something we really need to stay away from, especially to associate it with with guns and, and people that are peaceful, um, you know, responsible gun owners. That's exactly right. If we can't vote them out, uh, if we can't get a Republican majority to cut the funding on tyrannical Obama, then really are we going to be able to have the wherewithal to storm a White House or a Pentagon or any other point of government power? That's just not sensible talk, and it shows an impatience and an unwillingness to do the nitty-gritty hard work that would come long before, as the Declaration of Independence itself said, having endured a long train of abuses 
well, we're enduring such a long train, but are we focusing it? Are we really trying to point out, to spotlight to people that this is where the government has gone off the rails? Uh, we see some of that being done, and we see it being done by Senators Paul and Cruz and Governor Walker and others. Uh, and I'm very happy that they are raising their voices, and hopefully those are going to provide a a leadership for a political movement that will take back the country. Let's talk more about that nitty-gritty political work that needs to be done, as you mentioned, and what actually inspired the creation of Gun Owners of America? What weren't you seeing in the political realm from other groups, perhaps such as the NRA, which has been around you know, as a right. gun-lobbying organization since the 1800s? What weren't you getting from these other organizations that you felt the need to create GOA in order to sort of fill a gap of some kind? Well, first of all, to give credit where it's due, we were founded by a California state senator who realized that being in California, he needed to have the operation located in Washington. And so I came on within months of the formal legal organization of Gun Owners of America. So while it's not technically true to say I founded it, I've certainly been blessed to be with it from the very beginning and to build it up uh, during the time that I've had uh, to do that. The difference in a philosophy of the two groups, I think, can be understood if you look at how or why we were formed. What was the motive? In the case of the NRA, you had union officers who were appalled at the lack of marksmanship displayed by union recruits compared to the uh, Confederates who were largely agrarian and were excellent shots. Uh, there, There was no question about that. And so the NRA was formed by a bunch of union officers for the express purpose of fomenting marksmanship among the young men of the country, and particularly in the North, but eventually the whole country. The Gun Owners of America wasn't organized for almost 100 years following, and the reason that we were founded uh, was for something very different, a, a motive very different. NRA was set up to be a help to the federal government. We were set up at a time when that federal government had begun to go off the rails on the gun issue and become rather tyrannical regarding the Second Amendment, and we were set up to oppose the federal government. The NRA has, over time, accepted reluctantly the the fact that the federal government that had been their ally for such a long time had been turning on them. And so they have, from time to time, been able to kind of muster the, the resolve to oppose various gun control initiatives at, at one time or another. But it's been hard for them. They haven't really been able to make that adjustment because they still have this very good, useful, symbiotic relationship with the Division of Civilian Marksmanship that distributes uh, surplus rifles and ammunition. And the NRA is the conduit for that. Uh, versus Gun Owners of America that never got into that kind of activity. We've always been politically oriented and politically oriented to oppose the federal government. So while it comes natural for us to be suspicious and adversarial, it comes with difficulty for the NRA. Could you name a couple policies or uh, pieces of legislation that the NRA has maybe perhaps even reluctantly supported that you at Gun Owners of America are are adamantly opposed to? You bet. Uh, They were the originators of the original instant background check, and they devised it 
decades ago as a way of uh, diverting the political thrust for a waiting period. And I remember going over and meeting with uh, their officials and saying, look, both of these are unconstitutional, but at least the waiting period doesn't give the government any opportunity to grab hold of our name, address, kind of gun we're buying and all that. The instant background check does. Oh, but they said the law is going to prohibit them from doing that. I said, do you really believe they're going to obey the law? Well, of course, we've been proven correct. The NSA broke the law about listening in on phone calls. And we know for a fact that the federal government has been copying wholesale firearms transaction records, taking copy machines into dealers' shops and making a copy of every single transaction that that dealer has in his books. I, I, I just got to stop you for a second because I've never heard that. I'm absolutely, absolutely shocked to hear that. It seems, and it's amazing to still be shocked at something that the federal government does because they do many, <laughs> so many shocking things, but I, I'd never heard that they actually had gone into specific gun stores and copied all their records. We had dealers and customers alike tipping us off, and we've put that information on our website at gunowners.org, obviously blocking out the uh, information that would lead a retaliation to those individuals. But yeah, it happened. We were getting repeated contacts from these folks in the public, both in the trade and customers. So uh, it's been happening, uh, but naturally you didn't hear about it on CNN and evidently, nobody ever got it over to Fox either. You mean your pal Piers Morgan wasn't uh, doing a big story on that, on that one? <laughs> you know, by the time we were finding out about this, my good friend Piers was probably no longer on the air. So uh, surely he would have, I'm sure, uh, had he known and still had his camera and microphone. Uh, let's get <laughs> him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, well, we do it in England. Why shouldn't we do it here? I'm sure he would ask. Uh, <laughs> but don't be too hard on Piers Morgan because he increased the robust nature of our email list enormously when he had me on a show and behaved in such a churlish fashion. And that ro- newly robust email list was very instrumental in defeating the post-Sandy Hook push for an expansion of the uh, background check. So he went and actually uh, helped you out unwittingly, I guess. He absolutely did. So uh, hats off to Piers Morgan. I wasn't in a hurry to tell him because if I ever were back on his show, I would like to, you know, think that he might send more traffic our way and and get more people to join up at gunowners.org. But alas, that opportunity hasn't presented itself. And now he's, I believe he's still the uh, U.S. editor for the London Daily Mail. So let's talk about that for a minute, what he said there during your conversation. And we'll link to this in the show notes for this show. But, you know, he basically makes that argument that you often hear. Well, you know, England banned guns and, and things are working out. And and I think they had a couple of different sort of waves of gun laws they passed in the last 30 years. But well, what would you say to people that say, hey, look, you know, other countries have done this. I know President Obama in his recent podcast with Mark Marion that for some reason I decided to listen to. He went on a 20 minute spiel about how, you know, in the 70s, there was a shooting in Australia. They went and banned guns and they haven't seen any big mass shootings since then and then you hear the same thing about England so what would your response to be to that argument that people say look you know you might love guns but the fact is if we take them away from the population we're not going to see these terrible shootings like we see in Sandy Hook like we see in Charleston well actually they have seen mass shootings uh, in Australia and in England I think it was just a couple three years ago up in Cumbria in the northern part of the country there was a mass shooting some dozen people met their end 
at the hand of a madman with a gun, uh, and nobody was able to protect themselves. And we've had attempts at mass murder in this country that have absolutely been stopped at their inception by people in the public who were armed, who were in the vicinity of the wannabe mass murderer. Uh, so we're not about ready to, on that basis, let alone on the basis, the real meaning of the Second Amendment, which is to retain in the hands of the people arms that would be necessary to throw off the yoke of tyranny. Uh, I would point to a couple of examples within my lifetime where the Second Amendment has absolutely been employed to face off and push back tyrannical government. One was in 1946 in Athens, Tennessee. Uh, veterans came back from their service in World War II and were appalled to find that the little town, little city was completely dominated by some corrupt politicians who uh, were blatantly stealing elections, including the one in August primary of 1946, which was tantamount to the election in those days in Tennessee. And they anticipated what happened the ballot boxes were walked off with by uh, the police, taken to the cop shop where they were going to be, quote unquote, counted. And so the militia, which was not a formal entity, but that's what it was, came into town maybe an hour later after the theft, uh, guns bristling from the windows of automobiles and guys in pickup trucks, and they surrounded the cop shop. There was a brief gun battle that ensued. The cops realized that this wasn't going to end well and left the ballot boxes and surrendered and, and left. And it turned out the reform slate won. So there was a very robust exercise of the Second Amendment. And without actual bloodshed, to my knowledge, the Battle of Athens, Tennessee ended in favor of the people, which was exactly the intention of the Second Amendment. The much more recent employment of the Second Amendment was at the ranch of Clive and Bundy in Bunkerville, Nevada, and a couple of years ago when uh, BLM decided that they weren't going to wait for no stinking court process. They were just going to take Bundy and uh, take his cattle and kill him because they didn't want them uh, using a watering hole on federal land that Bundy had a contractual right to use. And so he held them off with his family initially, but as you probably well remember, the issue quickly escalated. People were coming from all over the, the state, then all over the country to defend Clive and Bundy. And uh, frankly, it ended in a very dramatic fashion that I only knew about the final details from former Sheriff Richard Mack, who had been at the scene, the ranchers were riding, men and women alike, on horseback toward a corral where about a third, about a hundred of Bundy's livestock had been penned up. They were going to let them loose so that they could go water and graze. The feds, it turned out, had dug some pits where they were going to toss the carcasses of these animals. Had they done that, that would have been about a million bucks on the hoof of those uh, some hundred cattle, third of his herd. It would have been a devastating blow to Clive and Bundy's family operation. Well, I was on my way out on a Sunday, got a call the Saturday before uh, 7.30 uh, Nevada time in the morning. Stuart Rhodes, the head of Oath Keepers, called to tell me, well, we're canceling the news conference that you were coming out to on Monday. 
I said, whatever for? Uh, the, the feds are still as obnoxious as ever. He said, no, they've left. And I, I subsequently learned from Mac that it was when these men and women were riding unarmed to release the cattle from that little corral that had been thrown up, that they were riding into the barrels of machine guns that were held by the BLM agents who were on the verge of gunning them down. And happily, even though the sheriff at the time he's been replaced was feckless, a deputy rode out to the BLM agents and said, do you want to be known as the folks that gunned down unarmed men and women? And that got through to the conscience of the uh, head BLM guy on the scene, and the others lowered their guns following his lead. And that's when I got the phone call. Uh, I imagine all this happened about 6.30 or 7 in the morning, and I get a call at 7.30 their time back east where Gun Owners of America is located outside of Washington, D.C., telling me, well, that Monday news conference is, is off. And so that's how that ended. But while it's true that the, the ranchers that were riding toward the corral were unarmed, had shots been fired at those unarmed people, it would have only been a matter of minutes before a surrounding number of supporters of Bundy who were armed would have been descending on the BLM agents and perhaps a, a new American civil war would have erupted right then and there on that spot. Well, I think you and I are probably both glad that that, that didn't happen because A, we don't want to see, see lives lost, but B, I mean, if a, a civil war like that breaks out or a really a, a small conflict becomes more armed as maybe more people might you know come into the area who were supporters of Bundy, more federal agents come in. I mean, that kind of thing can spiral out of control so quickly and obviously exactly. divide the country so quickly that before you know it, it can be, you know, a really a, a tragic event. And if it's not a true revolution based on, you know, ideas true at, at its core, it's really just going to be needless violence at, at the end of the day. But it's interesting that in both Athens, Tennessee and Bunkerville, Nevada, peace was maintained ultimately by an armed people. Right. Yeah. So when people say, when guys like you say, you know, we need the Second Amendment to defend against tyranny, it doesn't mean storming the White House and taking over the government. What it means is just being at least putting yourselves on equal footing with a possible tyrannical move of a government that could be a local government, a state government or the federal government. But the point is, you are on equal footing with with law enforcement. Absolutely. And in fact, you made a good point. The Battle of Athens was a local government. The Battle of Bunkerville was a battle involving the federal government. So what would you say to people? I mean, I know a lot of people that are in favor of a lot of gun laws, in favor of background checks. You know, they're not they're not tyrants. They're not bad people. A lot of them are just people who see a shooting like Sandy Hook or they see something like what happened in Charleston. And they say, look, we just can't have psychopaths, you know, getting hold of these guns. They might even people who support general gun ownership, but simply want restrictions on people that are mentally ill or mentally unstable. So, I mean, what would you say to that objection and that concern? And do you see any place in society for some kind of check, whether it's by the government or maybe just privately, on who is able to purchase weapons? Well, there's common elements beyond the use of a firearm in these tragedies. The first one is that all but two of the mass murders in our country since 1950 have taken place in gun-free zones. The dirtbags that carry these out are evil people, but that doesn't mean that they're not rational. And their logic is, I want to kill as many people as possible. And so where do they go? 
where they're not going to meet at least immediate resistance. They're not going to a GOA meeting. No, exactly. <laughs> and th this is something that is never mentioned by those that think the gun is the only factor operating in these tragedies. The other one that doesn't get a whole lot of attention, for instance, in the uh, most recent case of the uh, South Carolina church dirtbag, um, we barely saw any reference. I only saw one article that mentioned that he had been on Suboxone, which is a psychotropic drug, and psychotropic drugs are almost always where the medical records have been made available, which is in over half of these shootings, almost always linked to uh, the, the shooter who had been taking or had just been coming off of these drugs. And the problem with these drugs is that some people react in a violent fashion. And often they don't even know what they've done. When the, was it the one I was reading just recently? Uh, I think it was the guy in Charleston did not remember what he had done. That's Darren Roof you're, you're speaking about? Exactly. Because I know that um, James Holmes in, in Colorado also, they, he said the same thing, that he right. didn't he, really know what happened. He didn't remember what had happened. And that, his was a, let, let, let's just stand with Holmes because I'm quite certain that he was one of many who have made that same statement. And uh, there's a psychologist, which is not a psychiatrist, which is not a medical doctor using these psychotropics, but a psychologist counsels, maybe with, with poor methods, maybe with better methods, but they don't use drugs. And uh, Linda Lagerman is a psychologist who's moving from San Francisco to Washington to lobby the Congress and to make these points that the Congress has to exercise better control, as long as the FDA is going to be involved in these drugs that are being used by people, it's far too easy for these psychotropic drugs to be put out on the market. And then there's been actually an indemnification for the drug companies because they know that bad juju can happen taking their drugs, and they've been able to get legal immunity from lawsuits being brought against them as a result of taking these drugs. Wow, I'm learning so much from you today because I didn't. I like to think I'm up on current events, but I didn't know about that either. I didn't know that they actually have actual legal immunity from any sort of prosecution related to what people might do on these drugs during George Bush's presidency. Wow. Yeah, George Bush uh, has a lot of uh, bad stuff regarding guns on his record. He's the guy that signed what we call the Veterans Disarmament Act, which was a kind of precursor of Obamacare. And our concern was, and it's been proven to be a very real one, is that once you start allowing the feds to paw through medical records and go for medical psychiatric diagnoses, that those diagnoses are going to be used to deprive people of the right to keep and bear arms. And sure enough, even while they were still debating the bill, we got calls from people saying, hey, I couldn't get my concealed carry uh, renewed. And uh, within two weeks, ATF was at my door telling me to hand over my guns, that I had a PTSD diagnosis on my record, and uh, that was what they were using as the basis to grab my guns. Almost everybody who has PTSD never manifests any violent symptoms. I knew a, a veteran who um, had uh, been in combat, and he had PTSD, 
And uh, he told me that even when he was at home, he got over it eventually by himself while he was suffering from it. He might wake up in the middle of the night, grab his pistol from his nightstand and sweep the room, making sure that he was not being attacked. Once he was sure that he and his wife and family were safe, back went the gun, back went the veteran uh, in into bed. Uh, so that would probably be a fairly typical outcome. A guy exhibits some kind of behavior that's not normal, but he's not violent. Right. And there's a danger of even saying, you know, anybody who's mentally ill cannot have a gun because who determines what mentally ill is, what level of mentally ill is? I mean, Thank you. with so many soldiers coming back with some level of PTSD, if they suddenly classify anyone with PTSD as having a mental illness, well, suddenly all our veterans are disarmed. I mean, it's a very frightening situation. That's that's what we're staring at. You're absolutely right. And the language of the law says might be a danger to self or others. Our insistence has been that that law should not operate unless a plaintiff, the government, a wife, whoever, has been able to go to court and prove in an adversarial situation where the defendant has uh, representation, can bring in his experts, bring in whatever evidence he wants to bring in, so that he can defend himself against the charge that he's a danger to self or others. If they can't prove it in a court of law, in that adversarial arena, then leave the guy alone. Absolutely. Uh, Larry, if you don't mind, I just want to touch on a couple quick news items uh, recently and get your thoughts on them. And one of them is the recent decision by Uber to basically make a proclamation that in states that do allow concealed carry, that they are attempting to disbar or, or proclaiming that their drivers must disbar themselves or disarm themselves, I should say, and not carry their weapons during their actual use of their uh, vehicle for working for Uber. So what's your opinion on that? Do you think Uber as a private company supposedly has the right to make a statement like that? Or is it really, you know, pushing the bounds of infringing on the individual rights of its citizens that especially considering that Uber doesn't necessarily call its drivers employees? Correct. Um, let's go back to how this got started. In Chicago, an Uber driver saw a, uh, a dirt bag, uh, evidently intent on becoming a mass murderer. He was firing into a group of people. The Uber driver had a, a rather rare possession, a concealed carry permit that a recent court decision had enabled him to get from the city of Chicago. The Uber driver uh, was able to stop wannabe mass murderer and arguably saved a lot of people's lives. Uber then, under the rubric of no good deed goes unpunished, within a couple of weeks announced the policy you referred to, saying no guns for our drivers nor for our passengers. Well, yeah, Uber's a private company, but first of all, I don't think property rights transcend the right to life. And if they want to have a gun-free environment, they have to be able to show a level of security tantamount to an airport. And obviously, that's not going to work. You're not going to get an Uber driver picking somebody up at 2 in the morning, running a potential client through a, a, a magnetometer you know, before he, he gets into his car. And besides which, when they both of the passenger and the driver come up to a, a stoplight at 2.30 in the morning, and some dirtbag comes up to them with his gun, which obviously didn't go through a magnetometer, you've left both of those people defenseless. 
It is an absolutely wicked policy that Uber has taken. And happily, there are alternatives, and I don't have to take an Uber. I can get a taxi cab where this is not going to be an issue. Do you think that they're actually violating the law in, in concealed carry, carry states by doing that? I mean, I'm no legal expert on this stuff, but I mean, in a lot of concealed carry states, you stores can't even ban their customers from from you know having their concealed carry weapon. I don't even know how they would, besides patting them down or something. But that's a good point. Practically, I don't know how they would enforce it, as you just said. And uh, as a matter of law, I'm not sure really what the basis for them doing that is when they're open to the public and they're not providing the level of security that I mentioned. So I think they've got themselves into a sticky wicket. They've got somebody that uh, thinks the way anti-gunners frequently think, which is with their feelings. I don't feel safe knowing that my passenger, my driver might have a gun. Uh, Well, that's a feeling, but that's not logic. Logic tells you that crime went down in the District of Columbia when they got rid of their gun ban, violent crime. And uh, we know it's going down in Chicago as a result of the elimination of the gun ban. As difficult as it is for people to work within the system that's still on the books, it's very hostile. Nevertheless, it makes a difference when you tell dirtbags, you know, um, we might just put a bullet in your bag, Mr. Dirt. Uh, you know, I, I just saw something else recently that I saw that Rand Paul, who I know both Rand Paul and Ron Paul have been huge supporters of your organization, and I saw he was not invited to the NRA's, I guess, dinner this year, and it's kind of a big deal where they invite a lot of prominent pro-gun politicians. They've got Jeb Bush coming. I don't know his, his, his stance on guns specifically, but I can't imagine it's better than Rand Paul's, and they've also got you know, Scott Walker, Ted Cruz, people that are generally pro-gun, but, I mean, Rand Paul is an A- minus rating from, from the NRA, so what's your take on that? Why do you think there's sort of distancing themselves from Rand Paul? I think there was a a difference over one of the concealed carry issues. Uh, uh, It wouldn't have been a federal matter, but to give you an idea of what I think is the deal, um, at various states from time to time, we've been pushing for what's called constitutional carry, uh, carrying a concealed firearm with no permit whatsoever. Uh, Eight states now have constitutional carry. As these battles have progressed across the country in a number of states, told legislators privately, uh, we don't support that legislation. And I think something like that was going on with Rand Paul and the NRA. I honestly don't know uh, what it was, but, well, I can tell you that when when uh, Senator Cruz was leading the fight, which Rand Paul was part of, to defund Obamacare, in part because of its anti-Second Amendment implications, Uh, the NRA was nowhere to be seen. And when a meeting was held in Senator Mike Lee's office to try to uh, focus the memberships of the various organizations that were represented in his conference room so that everything that we did uh, in communication with our members from that moment on until whenever the vote were held uh, would focus on kill the funding for Obamacare, kill that funding. And the NRA was not at the meeting because they were not on board with that. I see. So so you think maybe the NRA might sort of politically calculate things a little bit more so, whereas you, are, you guys at Gun Owners of America are going to purely look at the gun stance every single time and, you know, not necessarily be concerned about political implications on, you know, in terms of Democrat, Republican politics and that kind of thing. Just keep in mind the difference between the two words, uh, helper and adversary. 
NRA uh, often wants to help the government, and in areas that's fine. You know, I, I'm I'm down with um, helping young men and women be good shots, uh, but uh, that gets in the way of their seeing the need to be adversaries when the time comes. Well, Mr. Pratt, I greatly respect the work you guys are doing at Gun Owners of America, and I'm glad I could have you guys you on the show to talk about this and talk about your organization more. Before I let you go, why don't you let our listeners know how they can join up with Gun Owners of America and how they can get in touch with you and how they can get more involved. Well, if they just go to gunowners.org, they can uh, send mail to me through the website there. Uh, I would encourage, if they did nothing else, please... Uh, go to the Take Action tab, get on the list for our alerts. When you get one of those alerts, there's an email embedded in it, and it will almost always be dealing with whatever that issue is we emailed about, and it enables you to very quickly and easily communicate with your representative, with your two senators, about that measure involving the Second Amendment. That is how we turn the NRA around. Uh, when we were fighting the post-Sandy Hook legislation, when they got pummeled with people sending email and and, uh, phone calls that we had requested, they did a 180, and they came out against the very gun control legislation a week before they'd been supporting. So it makes a difference. Well, keep this in mind. The old uh, Senator Dirksen, when he was around, uh, Republican leader in the Senate, uh, when I feel the heat, I uh, see the light. (laughs) all right well larry pratt thank you so much for coming on the show today i wish you the best of luck in the future and and with your great organization gun owners of america and and, you'll keep up the great work thanks mark good to be with you thanks larry greatly appreciate it bye-bye all right guys i hope you enjoyed my interview there with mr larry pratt i've got some thoughts of my own but first i want to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors and if you're a big second amendment fan like today's guest larry pratt There are plenty of shirts for you over at LibertyManiacs.com, including the Obama Can't Ban These Guns tank top. I know all you buff libertarians out there want to sport this puppy at the beach this summer. And our friend Dan McCall has set up a great discount exclusively for Lions of Liberty listeners. You can receive 10% off your entire order by using the discount code LIONSOFLIBERTY, all one word, that's Lions of Liberty at checkout. Head over to LibertyManiacs.com and wear something worth saying. And guys, if you follow the news, you know that insurance premiums are set to rise once again by some estimates up to 50%. But there is a way to control the costs, and that is by rejecting the current health insurance system altogether and joining up with a health sharing plan. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have put together a package with everything you need to control your own health care and to do so without breaking the bank. How on earth is this possible? Well, there's one way to find out, and that's by heading over to lionsofliberty.com health. Now, folks, many of you listening today, if you consider yourself friendly to the ideas of liberty may already agree with Larry Pratt and and the mission of Gun Owners of America. I hope that some of you listening are not as familiar with this stuff because I don't do this podcast to preach to the converted. I certainly don't do it for my own health, that's for sure. I do it to try to shape ideas and change the conversations. And a lot of the mainstream conversations when it comes to guns are, quite frankly, completely irrational. You know, we want to go out and blame inanimate objects for all the terrible things that happen in the world. And, you know, nobody blames the car when somebody is killed in an auto accident, heaven forbid, in a DUI, they blame the human being. That person is prosecuted. They don't go out and try to find everybody out there or, or prosecute everyone that might own a car. 
or do background checks on people before they own a car. A car is a very deadly weapon. I'm not looking this up. I'm not. (laughs) Feel free to Google it yourselves, but I'm pretty damn sure cars kill a lot more people than guns every year in the United States. I'm willing to be wrong, but I don't think I am. And you know why I'm not going to look it up? Because statistics don't matter for anything. Too many people try to base their political beliefs on what some sort of statistic tells them, or what some sort of, you know, study or chart or graph tells them. But we need to base our political beliefs... I might have mentioned this before, guys, on philosophy, on principles, whatever that may be. I happen to believe in a philosophy of individual rights. I happen to believe in the principles of non-aggression and of non-interference with the actions of others so long as they haven't harmed anyone else. And I'm not going to go on the whole rant about a polite society is an armed society or even about why an armed populace is a great defense against tyranny and tyrannical actions of government. We talked about all that stuff today with Mr. Pratt. And those things may be true in many circumstances, but they aren't the reasons why I personally support gun rights. I support gun rights because I support individual rights. I support a philosophy of liberty. And that philosophy has led me to believe that one should not be interfered with, physically interfered with, in their lives if they do not physically... doesn't need to be physically. We can talk about fraud and all this other stuff. There are ways to interfere with people's lives that aren't directly or outwardly physical. But the point being, if you haven't harmed anyone else, you shouldn't be harmed yourself. And the fact is, the vast majority of people who own guns do not own them in order to harm other people. Although many of them own guns in order to harm other people if they are coming after them for the purposes of self-defense. You can talk about hunting all you want. That's not the reason most people buy a gun. It's not the reason most people own guns. I mean, I know people that hunt, but even those people that own guns that hunt, that's not the primary reason that they own a gun. The primary reason that they own a gun is to protect themselves, to protect their family from who knows what. A crazy person bursting into a movie theater, perhaps. And hopefully that movie theater hasn't banned guns, as was the case in Aurora, Colorado with James Holmes. People want to blame the guns. They don't want to blame the cars, though, but they do blame the alcohol. And in this case, the alcohol, in many cases, seems to be a lot of these psychotropic drugs. And as you heard today, the manufacturers of these drugs have immunity over prosecution for any sort of ill effects that might be related to their drugs and how they might cause certain people to be engaged in violence. Now, look, I don't want to ban psychotropic drugs per se either, but when you have the federal government, and this is changing in many ways, banning marijuana bearing other substances which might help people that have PTSD or other mental disorders. I talked about all this with our good friend Brad Burge over at MAPS. I'll post a link to that interview in today's show notes, lionsofliberty.com slash 126. Now, when they're banning all these other substances and then giving immunity to companies that create these other substances, these psychotropic drugs, well, that's a little bit of a problem, and that's a little hypocritical, and that doesn't make any damn sense. And the gun debate can be tricky, because to me, the gun debate doesn't mean that guns should be allowed anywhere and everywhere, but they should not be generally banned from the populace. I mean, private communities, I I mean, I think the movie theater in Colorado should be allowed to ban guns, if they want. I don't gotta go to that movie theater. In principle, there's no reason that property owners, private communities, city-states, etc. could not decide they don't want guns on their property, and while I might disagree... I don't need to go on their property. Now, in our present situation, in our modern society, where laws are crafted largely without the consent of the governed, without regard for private property, this becomes a little tricky. 
And I got a lot of flack from libertarians for an article I wrote. Again, I'll link to this in the show notes. Lionsofliberty.com slash 126 calling out Uber for their sort of what I see as their hypocrisy in trying to ban guns from their drivers and their passengers, especially when they are not presenting any sort of secure environment. These drivers are operating on public roads. They're operating in places where people are allowed to carry guns concealed. Concealing the weapon in no way affects the transaction because it's concealed. So the only way to really find out is to have the driver pat down the passenger or the passenger pat down the driver. That's obviously not practical. It's obviously, to me, not moral. I don't believe we should be supporting or even defending companies that are attempting to infringe on the rights of self-defense in any way, shape, or form. Now, we could argue legally maybe they can do that. I I don't even think they really can. But I'm not a lawyer, and I didn't write that article to make a legal statement or to, you know, make a legal prescription for Uber. I wrote it to criticize them. And so many libertarians are just quick to defend every company because it's private. Well, I don't have to defend every company because I think a lot of companies do a lot of wrong, and I'm going to talk about it when I hear it. Now, I'm going on a little side rant here, but that's what I do. That's what we do at the Lions of Liberty podcast. It's what we do on our website. Lionsofliberty.com, where we have brand new content each and every day, Monday through Friday. So be sure to come on over and be checking that stuff out. And guys, like I said, I don't just want to preach. I want to have a conversation. You can have a conversation with us if you're on Facebook. I want to invite you over to our private group, the Lions of Liberty Forum. Again, something else we'll link to in the show notes. But if you just search on Facebook, Lions of Liberty Forum, request to join the group, and I'll let you in. It's that simple. It really is. You can also connect with us on our main Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us and tweet to us over on the Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Check out all our past shows at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. You can, of course, hear the show every single Monday and Thursday. Publish at lionsofliberty.com. You can also hear us on Saturdays and Sundays at libertytalk.fm, as well as throughout the week on the Liberty Radio Network. And for those of you still listening, for those of you who've made it this far, well, I know that you're a fan of the show, because no one listens to me talk for this amount of time if they don't like what they're hearing. And if you do, I just want to ask you to do me a favor, share this show with your friends and family. You can also head over to iTunes. This will be a huge help. Click that little subscribe button. Subscribe on iTunes, even if that's not how you listen to the show. It'll help get the show in front of more eyes, in front of more people on iTunes and on other platforms as well. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a rating, hopefully five stars, I'm not going to tell you what to do, and a review. These are ways you can help us without spending a dime. You you can, of course, spend dimes as well. By shopping over at Liberty Maniacs, you can spend dimes by shopping through our Amazon link at our website. There are many ways you can help us out at no added cost to yourself. Who doesn't like doing that? Till next time, folks, live long and live free. 